Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, I have Richard Smith, Head of Sales from Refract, as my guest. Richard, would you mind giving a quick introduction to who you are, who you serve, and how you got to where you are? Thank you, Marcus. Yeah, yeah. Richard Smith, Head of Sales at Refract. Been doing this sales role for 12, 13 years now. Started as an SDR straight out of university, not really having a clue what I wanted to do with my life. Fell into sales, didn't know whether I would actually enjoy it or not. For the first, I say, two or three years of my, my career, really just winged it, I'd say. Booking appointments for a, a team of field-based sellers. Started off my own back, just doing a bit of smaller deals, selling online over the phone, then becoming a relatively successful salesperson, probably not as successful as I as I could have been. And then I helped start up Refract about five years ago, now run the sales team here. And yeah, we're five years into the journey. So are you technical by background? No, not at all. I did a computer science no. degree at university, but I was absolutely awful at it. Got a really bad mark, a grade a degree at the end of it, which is why I decided I, I couldn't, couldn't do anything in computer science because no, no one would give me a job doing that. And so that's maybe one of the reasons I fell into sales. So how does a technical numpty develop an AI company? Well, I leave that to the people who are experts at doing it. I just sell the stuff, to be honest. Very good. Excellent. I'm always minded of Ross Perot, who said that I, um, I don't have an MBA, but I've got 2,000 on my payroll. <laughs> so yeah, surround yourself with people who, whose strengths make your weaknesses irrelevant. Okay. So tell me this. What are the four most common questions that prospects ask you about why they should buy a tool like Refract? So for a lot of companies, what they're actually puzzled with is not really truly understanding what success looks like in their team. They have top performing salespeople, they have poor performing salespeople, they have some people in the middle. And for a lot of them, they don't actually know why that's the case. They can make assumptions. They can say, you know, they 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 think they know what they're the one or two people at the top of their at the top of their team who bring in the lion's share, the revenue doing what's different to the rest, but they don't truly know the answer to that question. So for a lot of them, they, they, just, they just want to get more, more clarity on that. Secondly, I think they want, to, they want to figure out why they are not getting the results that they want, that they want to. You know, they, they openly tell me that they're not hitting the numbers that they should be, that their team are missing quota, and they think that the solution to that problem previously has just been about making more calls or improving their product or whatever that thing may be, but they're actually, they've, they've tried all those things and they're still getting the same results. And so they're wanting to understand how a company like Refract can start to give them the answers as to why they've consistently not been consistent with, with delivering the number. Sorry to interrupt. You just touched on something that's really important to recognize. Worldwide, only 13, 1-3% of sales teams hit their quota in 2019. That's shockingly low. 44% of individual producers hit their quota. That's the first time in recorded history, as far as I'm aware, that it's fallen below 50%. Sorry, I, I interrupted you. Next, the other two questions. So, uh, yeah, the other, the other two questions are surrounding why should I be starting to analyze my team's conversations. I think some people still don't really understand the value of, of being able to do that. They've just kind of got by not doing that before. In some cases, have lived, lived in blind ignorance. They just, they just go off what the CRM tells them, and they think that the CRM is, is ultimately gospel. As we all know, a, a CRM is, is only as shit as the, the shit data that salespeople do or don't decide Absolutely. to uh, put in it. Crap in, crap out. Yeah, and I think because we are still a relatively early adopter technology, we're still a, where, you know, we've came into this, what they are kind of framing as the, the sales tech stack landscape. They're starting to just be inquisitive about, well, why should I take this technology as seriously as the CRM, as the sales automation platforms, as the data platforms? And so there is just a genuine level of curiosity and increased curiosity about what we do and why we should sit alongside all the all the other tools and, and, and resources that they're, they're providing their sales team to help them succeed. So to set the scene, tools like Refract allow, they record the call and using AI, 
they analyze the language, the pauses, talk balance between the salespeople and are phenomenal as a support tool for managers to coach their people and for salespeople to be able to analyze their own calls, to recognize when they're talking too much, when they are using language that actually limits success, where they are failing to pick up on important clues from the prospect. And it's really interesting that so few managers spend enough time really in the field listening to the calls of their salespeople. They record them. But the the negative impact on CRM hygiene is massive, which then has a ripple effect around inaccurate forecasting. I go into organizations where their forecast variance can be 40 to 60% either way. I mean, bluntly, you may as well just flip a coin. I've been banging this drum for so long and I'll give a little plug for a, a product that I'm a big fan of called, called Membrane because I think they are a, a CRM which is tackling a lot of the challenges to do with traditional CRMs because it, you know, they give you greater visibility, much better visibility into what's going on. But even with the best CRM tools out there, I learned this a long time ago, Marcus. I, I was staggered to see that you would get sales directors literally presenting numbers to the board to investors, and investors are making judgments of investing X number of millions of pounds into their next into their next round, based on essentially what a salesperson has decided to put in a CRM. This is an opportunity that's going to close next week. Oh, this is a ninety five percent opportunity. Uh, oh, I had a great conversation, a great meeting with this prospect last week, and so that's why this is going to close next next month. And lo and behold, sales directors are looking at taking that as face value and submitting that to the board or that, that goes to the investors. And it's all just bullshit. I remember sitting in on a sales meeting and the sales manager actually accepted this shit. The sales guy said, boss, I know this is the ninth month that this deal has slipped, uh, but that's exactly why it will land this month. And it slipped again and again. Anyway, the sales manager went and things improved after that because he was a block. But again, when you think about the amount of time and resource that is wasted and the opportunity cost, you know, if you're on a million, uh, 1.2 million pound target, 100 grand uh, a month, that's 4,000 pounds a day. Every hour that a salesperson is stuck in a meeting, that's 500 quid opportunity cost. If you have 10 salespeople, every sales meeting is five grand's worth of opportunity cost. And if they're sat there listening to people lie from a work of fiction, which they claim is their forecast, and you do that week in, week out, that's five times 50. That's 250 grand just blown up the wall because the manager hasn't got control over the forecast. And they don't ask, well, why was it a good meeting? Now, what tools like Refract allow people to do is identify what actually happened and then to interrogate, well, why did you say that? Why didn't you say this? Being able to actually see the reality, the data with a graphic and a recording and be able to coach moment by moment through that process is something that you cannot afford to not do in this day and age, particularly where you've now got people working from home. You need to be right on the case. So tell me this. I mean, what sort of questions are you getting back from your client base about helping them to manage a workforce that they don't have direct control over anymore because they're having to work from home. The brutal honest mark is, is I think people haven't thought about this as much as they should be. That's the reality. They've just, okay, right, you've got a laptop. Okay, yep, away you go, work from home. They're now just sat there almost in blind ignorance that the salespeople are making every conversation count because let's face it, we've seen a ridiculous shift in the economy in the past week and a half, two weeks, ridiculous yeah. shift. The things that we were selling to buyers, deals are being put on hold, are being stalled. The buyers are getting more precious with time because they're stressed about what's going on in their, in, in their world. The conversations that they choose to have with prospects are going to become fewer and far between. They're going to be insanely selective about who they give their time to. So more than ever right now, every conversation that is happening in your, across your sales team, if, that's, if they're happening remotely, these conversations count more than ever. They count because we should be spending the, the right time with the right prospects, but we should be executing on, on those conversations. The margin for error has just got that much smaller. 
So really, I think what people should be thinking about right now is I no longer have the luxury of being sat in the office and overhearing what's going on in my sales team's opportunities. I need to be making sure that they're actually executing on every single opportunity we have because the opportunity cost right now is, is, is absolutely huge for a lot of companies. As well as being able to coach their reps through these times, there's a lot of people now that have a lot more free time. Managers have started to have more free time than they've, they've, they've ever had before. What they should be seeing right now is this is the time that I should be investing in trying to level up my, my, my sales team. All the excuses that I've used before about not enough time and got too many meetings on, those excuses are starting to fade away now. This is the time when they should be thinking about how can I, first of all, get the very most of, out, of my, out of my team, but how can I identify those guys who aren't ever going ever gonna to really cut it? And, and, and maybe, maybe this is the time that they need to make those tough calls. Well, if you're not familiar with Derek DeSoto Price's law, it states that 50% of your production will come from the square root of the number of people in your team. So if you have 10 people, three people will produce 50%. If you have 100, 10 people will produce 50%. And if you have 10,000, 100 people will produce 50%. Because talent grows in a linear fashion, incompetence grows exponentially. And as companies grow, they tend to compromise on recruitment and they just try and fill a seat. They want somebody, a warm body in a chair. So I think Richard's absolutely right. This is a, a really good opportunity for organizations to assess who is producing and who isn't. Great salespeople thrive whatever the economy Maybe a bit tougher, but they don't give up. And their mindset isn't one of resignation. Just going to jump in there as well. A lot of companies right now may be having to rethink their value proposition. Their value proposition to a business this week may need to be a little bit different to what it was two weeks ago. And so what I tend to find is that the best salespeople can naturally adapt. You know, they don't need to be told by their marketing team this is the new messaging that you that you need to use. They don't need to be told by their CEO, this is the new messaging you use. They are intelligent in the sense that they can tweak, adapt, refine their value proposition, the questions they ask to accommodate these, these changes in the market, to accommodate the prospect situations have changed, to, to accommodate the fact that their product, the value of their product might need to be perceived differently now to what it was when the economy is, is booming. Absolutely. I think this points to another issue, which is uh, the dearth of quality management. I have a real bee in my bonnet about this. And I, I don't blame the managers. The finger definitely points at leadership. Sales managers get less than 5% of the training budget for uh, sales worldwide. They generally get tapped on the shoulder when their predecessor gets fired and told, Richard, congratulations, you are one. So they don't have a runway. They need to learn how to train. But they have three, four major functions. One, hire the best people. Two, get the best out of them. Three, make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day. And four, protect the salespeople from idiot management changes and decisions that get in the way and clear roadblocks. Now, hiring the best people. You can start to see patterns of behavior if you are monitoring the, uh, the calls that salespeople are making. And you can see what they do repeatedly because habit is the, one of the best predictors of success. Making sure that they get the best out of them is about training, coaching, mentoring, making sure that they're midwifing deals, that they are doing pre-mortems. And what I like to do with my clients is you have uh, the white team that is supporting the sale. Uh, so it's a salesperson and whoever's on his team or her team. And then the red team. And the red team basically pre-mortems and says, okay, it's the day after the order has been announced who's won it. We didn't win, why not? And their job is to tear that deal to pieces. Now, managers should be able to facilitate that even in a virtual environment. And the only way you're really going to be able to do that is with good information. Now, being able to then pull the best from your sales team and then use those best practices to raise up the middle 60% is really uh, important in this economy as well. 
it's absolutely right. And I, and I, I think I come back to on your point there, Marcus, is, is being able to get good data. And unfortunately, salespeople aren't good sources of good data because you ask any salesperson, how was the meeting that you had yesterday? Nine times out of 10, they're going to say it was great, right? Even though we, <laughs> the reality is very different. If we say, why do you think you lost that deal? I, I just agreed to weeks of free consultancy and I've given everything away so they don't need to buy us and they're going to use everything we know to give it to the, uh, the incumbent and they're going to get paid. Or they'll say, you know, why did you lose the deal? Oh, it's because budget got pulled or there's no budget. And that is the kind of stuff that is being banded about around sales teams week in, week out. And we're nodding our heads. The sales managers are nodding their heads and say, okay, never mind. Let's move on to the next one. They're not actually going back into, well, let's actually figure out what happened in the, in the dis- initial discovery conversation you had with, prospect, with, with the prospect to see, did you ask the right questions to actually justify this would never be a budgeted item. This customer would have paid for this if they'd seen value in it. The reality is you did not get this prospect to see, to what, you didn't identify compelling reasons to buy. You didn't in, in identify motivation as to why they want to fix this problem. So the excuse of no budget is just a nothing ob- objection that they've said just to, just to stop you from pestering them. The problem is, is that companies lack this visibility. They're just going off the word of the salesperson and that's all they're going off. They're not actually going off the reality of what actually happened. Where did the salesperson actually fall down, which was the main reason why this customer decided not to spend any money with them? I see a huge opportunity at the moment because we can't physically meet prospects. Calls can actually be recorded. Whereas a sales meeting, that might be a bit trickier. And I I don't know whether or not you have an app that means that they can record a a meeting. But all the conversations can now be recorded. So you can help the salesperson to identify, was it a necessity or was it discretionary spend? There is no discretionary spend happening at the moment. And there probably won't be for a while. It's all going to be what's needed, what's necessary, which means that have you done a proper diagnosis of their pain? What's a recognized need, desire, pain? Have you really understood what resources they need to be able to invest? Have you understood the decision-making process, decision-making authority, the committee that's involved? Because odds are, if they don't have that analytics available to them, then the salesperson's just going to... I mean, the one thing that they can do is blag. And so they'll feed the manager what they want to hear. And this is a great opportunity to really get stuck into the mechanics of the sale and the reality of it. Here's a great analogy for you, right? Let's take Jurgen Klopp, okay? He's probably recognized as the best Premier League manager right now, arguably one of the best managers in the world. I'm just using him as a, as a kind of a, an example of a great coach, right? Because we're, yeah. we're, on the, we're on the topic here of poor management. Can you imagine if Jurgen Klopp spends all week on the training field practicing, training, coaching, strategizing, analyzing the opposition. And imagine if he just never actually turned up to watch Liverpool's next match live. Imagine if he never watched what actually happened. And imagine if he just asked his players, oh, so, so what happened? Oh, we got beat 2-0. Oh, okay, never mind. We'll, we'll move on to the next. There's a reason that the best coaches in the world end up observing what actually happened. Because otherwise, how on earth can they truly understand how they can improve the, the, their team? How can they identify who the weak performers are, who the strong performers are, which players worked, which ones didn't? How on earth can we be good coaches, good managers, if we never actually observe the reality of what happened in that critical moment when my salesperson spoke with a prospect? Bonkers. One of the things that frustrated out of me is the, the amount of complete waste around technology that doesn't deliver. I saw uh, some research that we've done recently where only 5% of sales enablement projects actually delivered the result that they wanted. There are an awful lot of sales enablement directors trying to justify their existence because I think what's happened is people have fallen into the trap of throwing money at the problem and buying technology in the belief that it will somehow work. You mentioned George Bronte and Membrane earlier. Most CRM systems, they all do pretty much the same thing. I mean, I I agree, Membrane is a fabulous tool and much more intuitive and much more useful. But most CRM systems, I mean, at the height of Siebel's power, uh, only 12% of Siebel implementations were considered to be a success by users. That's 88% didn't. 
So you create all this disruption. You spend bucket loads of money on this technology in order that the audit people can get bad information to make terrible investment decisions. And to me, that strikes me as a critical area where businesses need to rethink their perspective or take a different angle and look at things through a fresh pair of eyes. What we need to be asking is, well, why do we do things this way? Why isn't it working? Mm-hmm. Why is it that our competitors or Richard is doing so well, whereas the other nine people in the team aren't? We need to be asking those difficult questions and be ready to have answers that we don't like the, uh, the answer to. Because if we're not ready to face up to that, I think we're in serious trouble. This brings me to the next question. So what are the questions that they should ask you, but they don't? That's a great, it's a great question. We're a software company. That's where we earn business value and we generate our revenue and that, and that affects our share price. But that being said, we have, as a business at Refract, the culture we have is one that is built on constantly trying to improve as a sales team. There is no point in us having a technology which is all around improving salespeople's capabilities if we do not have the culture aligned with that. So as an example, this morning, we had a team coaching where we're all this morning on Zoom. Usually we're doing this in person. We're on Zoom this morning. We're literally breaking down calls together as a team. We're then stopping it. We're then jumping into role plays and practicing and trying different messaging and giving feedback. And that's kind of part of the culture we have. And, you know, we asked a question this morning to our, just a couple of the SDRs and the team saying, how much better do you think you think you've became as an SDR because of co- the coaching that you've received at Refract? One of the guys said, literally, I, I can't quantify it. It's too, it's too much. I, I would never have got to where I am right now without the regular intensified coaching that I've, that I've had as, a, as, a, as, a, as an individual. So coming back to your question, what should they be asking? They should be asking, how can I create a better sales learning culture in my team? You guys live and breathe this. What can I do? Make me better as a manager. You guys have expertise in this area. What can I be doing to make myself and my team become better? How can I up my game as a manager? <laughs> exactly. How can I build more respect? How can I be seen as a leader, not just a manager? And you get seen as a leader when people respect you because you're, you're actually helping them become more successful. And you do that by actually coaching them and making them better at what they do. The other question, I think, again, and I don't want to kind of blow refracts trumpet too much here, is that we feel that through all of the conversations that we've been able to analyze through our technology and through all of the, the time and effort and practice we put into refining our how we speak with prospects, is having more of our customers say to us, more of our prospects, what would you recommend we do differently in our conversations to make us better as a team? What are you seeing work for you as a, as a, as a, as a sales team? We, we actually get quite a lot of comments from people that we sell to saying, fucking hell, I wish, I wish my sales team sold like that. The conversation we just had right now, they're saying that, I wish my guys would do that. But they're not asking me, can you show me, explain how, how, how you do what you do? I wish more people would ask me those questions because when they start to take pride in and understand the value in improving conversations, and if they understand that, if you have great conversations, you typically get better sales results, then they're going to be more successful as a, as a business. They're going, to, they're going to get better use out of, our, out of our technology at the end of the day. In my younger days, I used to do Tai Chi, and my sensei, or Sifu, said that you know that you've achieved real skill when an attacker says, master, teach me. And that is, I think, really important that salespeople should aspire to be so much better. And this then brings me to the next really contentious issue. Your average salesperson with 20 years experience has one year's experience 20 times over. They haven't grown. They don't invest in themselves. They don't develop. And I think one of the challenges that a technology like Refract is going to face is resistance from salespeople who know that they have nowhere to hide. I was speaking to Professor Eddie Obeng a couple of days ago, and he was saying that one of the biggest challenges with any change program is the resistance that uh, you get from people because they don't feel like they own it. So if someone's going to implement a technology like Refract, you can impose it, 
but you're going to find a lot of resistance. So how do you soften the blow and how do you get the users to engage right from the outset so they start saying, well, I want it to help me do this. I want to be able to do that. And that they take ownership and personal responsibility for their own development. I'll answer this question in two angles. One with the slightly uh, firmer response from me, because I do get I do get this from prospects, even from customers. You know, they, this person is really enjoying doing it, but this this person doesn't really like to be have their calls listened to. And I kind of think, well, why do you not think they want to want to be listened to? And gets them thinking. So, well, there's a, probably there's a probably a reason why they don't want to have their conversations listened to because it exposes that their weaknesses. Secondly, a few weeks ago, you just told me that your team are underperforming. So what, you're going to let your salesperson who doesn't like their calls being listened to overrule you in trying to tackle this problem? This is your job on the line. It's a classic example of basically weak leadership. I don't want to offend my salespeople. You're, you're not supposed to be their best mate. I come across this so many times with sales managers wanting to be seen as their, their salespeople's best friends. I, I give this analogy. When I was learning how to drive, there was a guy, my driving suit was called Peter. I thought he was a proper prick, if I'm just to be brutally honest. I despised every hour I sat next to this guy in the car. And the reason I despised it is because he would challenge me. He would literally say, right, stop the car. Why did you do what you just did just then? Richard, tell me why you turned right there. And I used to literally, I just didn't enjoy, I didn't, I didn't particularly like this guy, but you know what? I knew he was making me better and he made me, he made me pass and, he, and, and I knew the stuff that he challenged me on was help me succeed, help me pass my driving test. I would never yeah. go for a pint with this guy. Had no intention of ever seeing this guy outside of my driving lesson, but I knew that he was challenging me. He was a, he was a brilliant coach. Anyway, coming back, so that's just an analogy of I think when we think about weak leadership is you don't always have to be seen as your salesperson's friend. You're there to help make them better. It's a major problem. If you want to be liked by your salespeople, then get the hell out of sales management. Mm -hmm. Join the Samaritans or buy a puppy. What on God's earth are you doing? You're actually getting in the way. In TA, we talk about victims, persecutors, and rescuers. And I see the most divisive type of manager isn't the persecutor. They're just a bully. Get the hell out of Dodge with them. But rescuers help without boundaries or permission. They mollycoddle, they're permissive, and it's incredibly divisive because it just eats away at someone's capability. Your job is not to be their fucking friend. Your job is to get the best out of them. And if you can't get the best out of them, is it because they are unwilling? Is it because they're incompetent? Or if you look in the mirror, is it because you're a shit manager? And nine times out of 10, I suspect Looking in the mirror is where you should really start. 100%. If I take the kind of nicer approach to answering your question about what do you do, <laughs> uh, what do you do about if there's resistance? I think the key thing is, is using technologies like Refract, and if we just think of coaching in general, too many managers are, they think coaching is, is literally battering people over the head. You know, do this, do that. You know, reporting the numbers, as I say, and you know, most you know, you only achieved this last week, do more this week. I mean, it's like a salesperson could go to a CRM and find the numbers. They don't need a manager to tell them the, the, those stuff. That's not coaching. So I think when managers actually use technology like Refract as a way to, that is perceived by the salesperson as challenging, but it's challenging to help them get better. They're helping them. They can see a very clear output of having a conversation reviewed, analyzed feedback that's going to actually help them be more successful, that they can use technology like ours to share what successful people in the sales team are doing differently and helping them kind of try and replicate some of those traits. That's the key to success. It still needs the manager to, to, to apply it in the right way. But, but yeah, that's... Tell me this. Do you ever record coaching calls between salespeople and managers and then analyze those? Brilliant question. We work with a range of sales consultants and I know that a couple of them specialize in developing manager skills. And we never built Refract for this purpose, but we've had a couple of people say, what I'd love to do is start recording the coaching conversations between manager and the salesperson to hear what they actually sound like. 
and they actually use Refract in that way to capture those conversations, but to give feedback to the manager, not the salesperson, on running a coaching conversation. Excellent. What kind of impact does being able to analyze those calls have? It makes you more self-aware. It makes you realize what you actually sound like. When you're actually in that conversation, you think you're doing a great job. You think you're being, you think you're motivating your salesperson. You think you're helping them get better. When in reality, when you listen to the tape back, it's like when you're on karaoke, Marcus. When I'm on karaoke, I think I'm the greatest singer in the world. I think everybody's loving this. And then I realize someone's recorded a video of me at the back of the room and sends it in WhatsApp the next day. And I'm like, dear me, what on earth did I sound like? And it's it's exactly the same concept. When you listen to yourself back, you actually hear what, what it actually sounds like. You hear that you were actually telling the salesperson, you weren't asking them questions. You were talking too much. You were talking more than the salesperson was in, the, in that coaching conversation. The, the, the coaching conversation was actually quite demoralizing for the, for the individual. But in the heat of the moment, when you were doing it, you actually thought you were doing a great job. So to clarify a couple of things, coaching is not telling. Coaching is about having the salesperson work out the solution for themselves. Mm-hmm. You might have to help them fill in the 20% they can't do on their own. And there are three Ps. There's a protection there's potency, and there's permission. If they don't feel free to speak, then they will be constrained and you will not get improvement. If they don't feel safe, that they're not going to be punished for what they say. And if they don't feel empowered to speak their truth, that's going to be a problem as well. So anyone who is considering how to improve their coaching, get a book called The Sales Coach's Playbook, by Bill Bartlett. It's an excellent book, very good framework uh, on coaching. You don't necessarily need to spend a whole heap of time doing your NLP master practitioner because frankly, okay, getting that for just turning up. You need to really invest in becoming a fantastic coach. Coaching is the single biggest positive impact on your sales team. If you don't do it, which is why you will fit into the 87% of teams that do not hit their target. The ones who do coach do hit their quota. And what's interesting is the statistics on this are that people who don't coach or coach for less than three and a half hours per month per salesperson uh, will typically come in somewhere between 40 and 80% of quota. Those who do coach three and a half hours per month, on average, come in 105% of quota. Now. That is a significant difference. It also means that you have a certain amount of job security because sales management is the single most precarious position in almost every business. Why would you choose to put your livelihood at risk? And the excuse that you are too busy is total shit. The reason you are too busy is because you are not coaching. The reason you're too busy is you're suffering from upward delegation. You're having to make up the numbers at the end of the quarter, get onto your charger, polish up your armor, and go out and bring home the bit that's going to get you over quota. If you are not coaching, you are absolutely crazy, and you have no business being in sales management. Get out. Do all of us a favor. The team will probably do better without you. Completely agree, Marcus. And I think I wrote an article last year And it was around coaching should be a board level discussion because when you look at the data around win rates, around quota attainment, when good quality, regular coaching takes place, you're talking about share price moving significantly here. When you talk about something as significant as 30% better win rates when regular good quality coaching is taking place, then why isn't that being discussed at the, the very top brass of a business? I interviewed uh, Dr. Jeff McGee a couple of weeks ago for my podcast. And his view is that the chief learning officer should spend 80% of his time coaching and developing the senior leadership team. Because that is actually an example of where trickle-down works. If they were coaching or being coached, then that would trickle down into the culture of the organization. So coming back to your earlier question about your um, earlier unasked question, I think one of the most important lessons that we can take from all of this 
is that senior leaders, veterans, experienced people need coaching. And you will move the needle a lot further by getting 30% improvement out of someone who's doing 115% a target than you will by um, spending your time trying to coach someone who's at 40% a target. So another lesson is it should help managers identify how to play favorites and with whom. I know it sounds harsh, but I think managers should play favorites and they should spend the majority of their time coaching and developing their best people. Yeah. Because their best people, if you look at uh, Price's Law, the best people will be producing way more. Yep, yep. I mean, if you, just simple maths, simple, simple maths. If you you take a salesperson, top performer who's generating a million pounds a year, you increase them, those guys by 20%, significantly more than someone who's bringing in 250,000 pounds a year, taking those guys up by 20%. Why would you bother? Uh, absolutely. I'd like to explore, what is it that you're being influenced by? What are you reading, listening to, watching that you'd recommend to the listeners that, as a good material? Yeah. So one of the things I really enjoyed watching is Benjamin Dennehy's YouTube videos of him cold calling live. I think the reason that I enjoy watching them, why everybody else should should watch them is it sort of kind of kicks into touch all of the, the bollocks excuses about cold calling that I see around, does it work? You can't connect with senior buyers on the phone. You know, it's hard to get conversations out of senior people. You need to do shitloads of research before you decide to dial somebody. Just watch some of his videos and see, see how he does it to kind of dismiss a lot of those myths. The other thing... His trainer was... Yeah, I've I've heard on the grapevine uh, someone on this call taught him everything he knew, but um, <laughs> and then well, the other about everything. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing, a book that I've really enjoyed reading is a book called Sales Leadership by Keith Rosen, which is pretty much one of the best books I've ever read about anyone who's a sales manager who's wanting to become better at becoming a better coach. Really really nicely just sort of breaks down you know simple but effective techniques and processes that you can use as a manager to not just be seen as a manager but to be seen as a coach someone who's who's, who's truly improving and developing their their, their salespeople. so yeah i'd recommend anybody to, to check that out a couple of really good books that i'd recommend as well the cadence of excellence by matt mcdarby brilliant book yeah uh, and the other one it's just out Stop Killing Deals by George Brontine, who's the CEO and founder of Membrane. Really worth your while getting both of those and putting them into practice. You need to challenge yourself. And the books that make you feel uncomfortable, written by outliers, I think are really fantastic. And the other one who is just wonderful, Mike Weinberg. He's like my nice, uh, my nice twin. His stuff is just so on point. There is no bullshit. It's all been developed out of the, you know, the crucible of real life. And his material is fabulous. And the other one that I really like is Selling from the Heart, Larry Levine. Again, being genuine and being authentic in sales, I think, is uh, much underplayed. It's really important that your intent is right. Yes, you have a target to hit. But I think ethics, honor, values in sales really need to be elevated as well. And great managers teach their people great ethics. One of my favorite questions in a sales interview for uh, a new hire is, Richard, when is it okay to lie to a prospect? Uh, Never. Exactly. And it has to be that fast. And that is the only response. If there's any hesitation, what that tells me is they're going to go out there and they're going to feed bullshit to the prospects. Because yep. um, the minute you get caught in the lie, they may forgive you, but they will never forget. So every word that comes out of your mouth is then suspect. So really important. And I think it's vital that we elevate sales as a profession. Sales is a force for good. And it's massively derided for good reason. Because there are an awful lot of shit salespeople out there with dubious ethics. I think we should be raising the game. And you know, tools like Refract, I think, help. Because a manager catching a salesperson in a lie, that has to be 
a very powerful teaching moment uh, and possibly a disciplinary. Yeah, I, I think what I've learned throughout my career is, and it sounds like a cheesy analogy, but it's so true, is that sales, you don't just get better by chance. You don't get better by winging it. You do it by practice, perfecting your craft, learning, taking accountability for your own development. That pisses me off when I hear about, you know, I've got a team that's been doing this job for 10 years. They don't need coaching. They're really experienced. So like, you, you've, you've, in, in that case, you've got, a, you've got a sales team with a ceiling over their head. And if that's, if that's what you're happy with, then you know, fair enough being average. What passes for average is shit, by the way. Yeah, exactly. So you know, take pride in your learning. Get better. You get better at what you do, you'll make more money. Again, this is why I think the calendar is such an important tool that's uh, underutilized. As part of your calendar, you should be uh, filling your calendar 90 days in advance with personal stuff, admin, prospecting, study, with first meetings, second meetings, with uh, follow-up, with debriefing, all of that stuff. And if you haven't got an appointment on a time when you've got a first or second meeting uh, booked, then use that for prospecting or use that for study. I cannot remember a day since I was 21 where I have not spent between one and six hours in personal development study. In the last four or five years, I've read maybe 750, 800 books. You cannot fill your brain up with enough good information. And what's also really interesting, actually, I'm going to recommend another book, Range, by David Epstein. And it's how generalists thrive in areas of specialization where creativity is required. You need to broaden your understanding. You need to increase your business acumen and business understanding. I've trained people in 500 different segments of the market, and I've been able to take lessons from my matchmaking clients, so Yentl, putting wealthy city boys in touch with extremely well-educated Japanese women who didn't want to end up in three-by-three-meter apartment in Tokyo, and using the lessons from that to sell defense systems. And you can't do that if you don't have breadth of experience and breadth of knowledge. So that's a really cracking book. Next question. If you had a golden ticket and you were able to go back to your 23-year-old idiot self and advise him on how to avoid a lifetime of idiocy and self-sabotage, what would you say to him? Try and learn how to do sales properly <laughs> much quicker. Don't wing it. <laughs> you know, I felt I spent the early part of my sales career just making up as I went along. Yeah, maybe I learned the hard way, but as a result, I probably missed out on a shitload of money, shitload of commission. wasn't as successful as I, as I, as I, as I could have been. Probably wasted a couple of years of my career. If I'm being if I'm being brutally honest, and it wasn't until I actually started to understand the importance of getting having better conversations, getting better at the at the at the craft, which is ultimately going to pay for my you know my my retirement and my my, my family and everything else. This is serious stuff, and this is what this is what we forget, Marcus. Is like in sales, it's like we spend more time practicing things outside of our day job, getting better at our, our hobbies, and then the thing that actually is going to give us a future, give us a livelihood, give us a give us a pension. It's absolutely crazy. <laughs> um, so, uh, what's really interesting with that is, um, I think people are willing to help. One of the things I've been advising my younger clients is go onto LinkedIn and identify people whose history is your future mm-hmm. and ask them if they'd be willing to mentor you for 20 minutes a month. And if you do that with half a dozen, that's some really high-powered stuff. And go with one question. Go prepared. And what's interesting is a lot of people will actually be willing to help. And make sure that you're asking for coaching. Being vulnerable enough to ask for help is not a personality defect. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. I'm doing a survey at the minute. I've had over a couple of hundred salespeople respond to it. And one of the questions I've asked them, Marcus, is how much coaching do you receive from your manager? And then I also asked them, how often do you proactively seek out coaching? And it's amazing how many responses are, I hardly receive any coaching from my manager, but I also hardly ever ask for coaching. And I kind of feel like saying, if your manager's not going to be proactive doing it, then you have to take accountability yourself. If you're serious about wanting to get better, 
don't just sit there and wait for your manager to do it. Go and ask for it. And you know what? People are more willing to give you their time when you, they come and ask for it. Couldn't agree more. Okay, last question then. What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with in your business? I think like many companies, you know, we're talking, this is, you know, highly of the moment. I think what most companies are, are battling with right now is literally we've gone from having a pretty good economy, I'd say, you know, the economy was strong and literally in the click of a finger, it's been turned upside down and there's a lot of uncertainty out there. So I think like Refract are no different to many other businesses out there about, okay, how are we adapting Companies have suddenly put the brakes on spending, at least for the foreseeable future in, in some parts, because a lot of it, I think, is they don't, we can't see around the corner just yet of what's coming. So a lot of companies are kind of in at action stations. So I'd say maybe not struggling, but we're having to deal with is how are we adapting? What is the, who are the, the prospects and what is the specific part of the market that we know that we can serve that are going to be more desperate for our for what we're providing than, than perhaps than, than ever before. So we're just having a lot of conversations and a lot of coaching, a lot of practice, a lot of A-B split testing in some respects of finding which part of our customer base, which part of our target audience do we have the opportunity with right now? And we think we're getting the answer to that, which is great. But you know, I think ultimately it's like, like anybody else, we're having to quickly adapt and maybe rethink and rethink our approach and do that at very short notice. You know, we companies haven't got weeks and weeks to figure this out. They need to be thinking about this right now. It's really interesting. Um, and, and again, this is why it's really important to spend time constantly appraising yourself of what it's like to be your customer. When you're in sales, you need to be able to see the world through their eyes, in their skin, and recognize the kind of pressure that they're under. Uh, the pressure has changed. Most of these organizations have had unwelcome change foisted upon them. The systems and processes that worked when they were all working in harmony together, well, well, next to each other at least, have probably evolved to become more complex. And I think one of the, the three things that I'm really focusing on with my clients is simplicity get out of debt and no debt and cash flow. Those are the things that will either kill or keep a business afloat. So what can we do to simplify their business? How can we simplify their processes? How can we simplify their sales process, their recruitment process, their onboarding process? Because what we don't want is extra layers of fat that are getting in the way or confusing people. I think the debt problem is a major issue. I think we're going to see a credit crunch as the economy takes a downward turn. You're seeing it with the oil price. You're seeing it with the stock market. And whilst the Bank of England just reduced their interest rates as of the 19th of March to 0.1, I don't think that's sustainable anymore. So they need to leverage stuff. So what they're going to have to do is print money and they're going to have to tighten up on credit. So businesses are really going to face uh, some pressure there. So what can we do to help them become cash flow positive to pay off those debts? And I think it's also really important that we start thinking about how we can collaborate more effectively. And this, I think, is, requires us to look at diversity in our teams. In something that is very cut and dried and you know, it's a, a simple process, then specialism is okay. But I think one of the most important things is diversity. And one of the things that I find really helpful because of the work that I do is being able to talk to people from 30, 40 different industry sectors and get their perspective on the same problem. So what I might suggest is getting together symposiums with other business leaders and to tackle a particular problem. So what can we do? in order to improve the hiring process and the predictability of the hiring process of salespeople? How can we keep top talent? And whatever it happens to be, the question, but have maybe eight or nine people in a virtual chat room talking about this particular topic and use your salespeople as a team to tackle a particular problem. Because I think 
a lot of people have great ideas, but they won't necessarily speak up. So again, it's really important to create a safe environment for people to do that. So Chatham House Rules is a really useful thing. Now, you can talk about what was discussed, but you can't say who discussed it. And again, what's challenging our customers, if you're working in a particular sector or segment of the market, why not get together with other organizations that sell into the same space and discuss the problems that those people are facing and see if you can collectively come up with a solution or maybe even co-sell? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, I know that you're a big advocate and specialist in this area of looking at the channel partners. How can you form bonds relationships with people? How can you access the customer base of people in that, that are very aligned to, to your target audience? How can you help each other? The best business to win right now is within your existing customer base. That's, that's the reality. It's, it's, it's about getting people to, who are already spending money with you to spend more money and i love the idea of getting more strategic and forming strategic partnerships with similar vendors who are focused on the same types of prospects and customers you are and 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 having that as a revenue stream i'll take that one step further which is that your existing customers there's organic growth however you can look at their supply chain alliances joint ventures and channel you can look at their family Uh, of companies, so sister companies, subsidiaries, overseas subsidiaries, parent companies, alumni. If someone used to work at uh, the company that you're selling to at the moment and they've gone somewhere else, chances are they have the similar sort of problems. And I think the most underutilized prospecting resource is the customer's customer. Odds are that those open up a wealth of new opportunities. And that's before you start targeting your competitors' best customers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, you've got to get creative in your prospecting. And in this economy, you have to prospect harder than ever, more consistently than ever. And as Richard said, you need to think about modifying and adapting your talk tracks, uh, the pain indicators that you're going to be using to engage in the conversation that the prospects are already having. Fabulous. Richard, thank you very much. How can people get hold of you? I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, so feel free to connect with me there. Just search Richard Smith Refract. I'm semi, <laughs> semi-active semi on Twitter, which is Richard underscore Refract. But if you want to find out more about what we do, just head to the website, refract.ai. Excellent. And can you do me a favor and send me that article about coaching being a board level issue? And I'll make sure that people get uh, access to it in the blurb. Sounds like a plan. Thanks, Marcus. Thank you very much. So thanks to Richard Smith from Refract. This is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast once again. If you think you'd be a great guest or you know someone who'd be a great guest, please get in touch. Let me invite them onto the podcast. And if you've got questions for either myself or Richard, get in touch and we'd love to hear from you. It's Marcus Kauke signing off. Happy selling.